Hello and welcome back to the Playsheet Podcast. We're here for another episode. I'm Charles Horton and I'm here with Joe Simpson. Hey there, guys. So obviously last week, Joe, we talked about Tom Brady, the big news with Cam Newton and quite a few of the big moves and trades in the offseason. I thought we could carry that on and pick it up where we left off and talk about some of the other big names that we didn't get around to discussing last week. And I suppose one of the biggest names on that list is probably DeAndre Hopkins moving from the Texans to the Cardinals. Just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I think that if you're looking at the biggest move of the offseason outside of quarterback, I think it's got to be DeAndre Hopkins. Huge move. It's going to have long-term repercussions for both teams involved here. If we look at where we are in the season now, if we look at the reaction from the fans, there's only one winner from that trade, and that winner is the Arizona Cardinals. For sure. But it's always hard to judge a trade before that player's played for that new team. Let's just break this down and look at what actually happened with that trade there. We had DeAndre Hopkins going to the Arizona Cardinals, and along with Hopkins, Texans stuck in a fourth rounder. The Cardinals gave up David Johnson, a second rounder, and a 2021 fourth rounder. So you net out the fourth round picks year on year, and you get David Johnson and a second rounder for Hopkins. Now, David Johnson has probably been one of the biggest disappointments in the running back position, and alongside Levon Bell, those two players between them have probably done the most to reset the running back market in a negative way over the last couple of years. Price of running backs was going up year on year. Contracts were gradually getting larger and larger. We were seeing some big contracts with Bell, with Gurley, with a number of other players in the league. The performance of Johnson over the last two years, which, let's be honest, it's not all been his fault. He was injured. That was a big factor in his 2018 season. So that happened. But generally, the return that the Cardinals have had from Johnson for the money they've paid for him over the last two seasons, for the salary cap hit that he's had, has just not been there. So Johnson's gone with his contract, which was a big contract. And Hopkins, who... Now, we spoke last week about Mike Evans... And we said how we didn't think, well, how I didn't think that Mike Evans was a elite wide receiver. Hopkins is an elite wide receiver. And he's in the top five, top three. And I think that you can make a case that he is the best wide receiver in the league. Now, some people would certainly argue against that. You know, there's four or five guys who are the elite wide receivers. But Hopkins is in that conversation. Absolutely agree with you. I suppose with that trade, the Cardinals have very much filled a gap or not so much filled a gap, but they've supported the direction that they were looking to head in. They've got a young quarterback. They already were doing good work in the ground game last season, even without heavily relying on Johnson. And they've now added Hopkins to that receiver core to just give even more weapons to their quarterback. The Texans it feels like they've not moved forward in that trade at all, right? Because sure, they've got David Johnson and we know that running back was an issue position for the Texans last season. But then surely they've just created another problem by having a great big hole in their wide receiver core. I think that's the exact right way of looking at this, Chess. I think when you look at what the Cardinals are trying to do there, you've got Cliff Kingsbury who came in last year and he's running the air raid offense, so to speak. It's West Coast, but on steroids. They're going to be throwing that ball a lot. They're going to be getting Kyler Murray to sling that rock. Now, obviously, you've got Larry Fitzgerald there. You've got Christian Kirk. 
You've now got Hopkins. You've got a great wide receiver cast there. And again, last week, we said that the Bucks as a receiving core were good, but probably not the best in the league. If you want to talk about the Bucks as the best wide receiver room in the league, you've got to be talking about the Cardinals now as one of the best wide receiving rooms in the league. Not only do you have an absolute stud in Hopkins, you've got the experience of someone like Fitzgerald, and you've got some guys who aren't quite rookies, but are in that very early stage of their career, like Christian Kirk, who have done what's been expected of them so far from a rookie perspective, and are growing and developing as players on cheap contracts. So I think that wide receiver core there has everything that you could possibly want, and they are going to be a real deal. I think that if they still get play out of Larry Fitzgerald, if he can still do what he's been doing for, for God, for what, 20 years, then that's going to be a dangerous team. 100%, yeah. I mean, going to the Texans with what you said there, again, totally agree with you. We can talk for a long time about the running back position and how it's valued in today's game. But ultimately, they're paying a lot of money for a running back who has been injury prone. And this is the Texans who have struggled with injuries to running backs over the last two years. Yeah. And like you say, running back hasn't been the issue too much. Like the players that they have had to fill in, they've been okay. But you're taking away a huge target. So in 2019, Hopkins had 150 targets. You're taking away 150 targets from the passing game, which you've now got to replace. Will Fuller, when Hopkins has been away or when he's been double teamed, he was an all right backup cast, but... But that's because a lot of the attention was being taken by Hopkins, right? Will Fuller, you wouldn't say he's a wide receiver one. He can't do what Hopkins can do. He's a great person when he's not being double teamed that he can pull off those big plays. But if he's the number one wide receiver target, you'd probably think he's going to be wrapped up most of the season. Yeah, he's not had to play games where he's been the number one wide receiver. He won't be the number one wide receiver or he won't be the wide receiver one on the depth chart. That's going to go to Brandon Cooks, who the Texans traded a second round pick to the Rams for. Problem with Brandon Cooks is, again, he's someone who I'd argue, and you could argue against this, but I'd argue he's not really a wide receiver one. Where he's been asked to be a wide receiver one in the past, he's not in that elite top top 10 of players who are wide receiver ones. He probably sits just outside that. If he was that good, the Rams would have wanted to have kept him. If he was that good, the New England Patriots would have wanted to keep him. He's not. Yeah, although I suppose the Rams have parted with quite a few pieces this offseason. The Rams have got rid of quite a few highly paid veterans. I think I've had a look at what they've done over the last few years. I think getting to Super Bowl always causes teams problems in the seasons afterwards because you've got those players who are now Super Bowl players who want contracts that reflect that. You've got pressure when they are pieces, so to speak. In terms of players who are prominent parts of the offense, be that wide receivers, running backs or quarterbacks, who the fans know, who the fans pick on their fantasy teams, who the fans expect to see their contracts renewed. And basically the Rams fell into that trap and they gave Gurley a huge contract, which we can come on to Gurley, but that's probably the more questionable one. Cooks, you can say, well, you know, he was part of that Super Bowl team. He was the number one wide receiver on that Super Bowl team. Did he play like a stud wide receiver? Probably not. No, they didn't use him like one, did they? They didn't rely on him to make those big plays, to be untouchable, to create that space. He serviced a role, he did a part, but he didn't light the field up, did he? The 2018 Rams had a great O, but it was a very balanced O. You didn't have you know, a stud-wide receiver who's taking all the yardage. It was a very mixed team in terms of a running game and a passing game, and Cooks played his part, but he didn't play that part 
in the unbalanced way that Hopkins has played his part for the Texans oh, in the last three years. Cook cannot step into Hopkins' shoes and do what Hopkins has done. And I think if you look at the way that Hopkins has played the game, take away the stats. When you watch Hopkins play the game, Deshaun Watson could throw that ball up and Hopkins looked more than six foot one. He would pick balls out of the sky that he had no right to pick out of the sky. He'd do it in double coverage. He'd do it on the sideline. He'd do it in the middle of the field. He'd do it all over the park. Hopkins would pull that ball down. And when Watson needed to pull out a big play, Hopkins was there. I don't think you're going to get the same from Cooks. I don't think you're going to get the same from Will Fuller. Neither of those players can step into those shoes and do that same thing. Yeah. So whatever way you look at it, it's going to be detrimental to the Texans though. And I think that it's also going to be hugely detrimental to Watson as well because those big plays, those big throws, making the most of his arm, hitting a guy 40, 50 yards away in double coverage, he's not going to be able to do that. And they're going to have to find different ways to move the ball up the field. And I think that the Texans are really going to struggle from that point of view. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So touching on fantasy for a quick second then, what do we think that means for Hopkins' prospects? Obviously, before he was one of the only targets on the field, he was certainly the target that Watson looked to quite often. Now he's going to be throwing the ball by Kyler Murray and there's going to be probably some sharing of the ball there, right? Because you you have quite a few wide receiver threats Do you think that added wide receiver support that he has is going to keep defenders more honest and give him more opportunities? Or do you think that his target share is going to drop enough that he has a dip in fantasy performance this year? I think there's going to be some offsetting things here. I think he's going to find himself less doubled up on. So previously, teams could put a corner and a safety on him. Defences weren't really staying honest. They could double up. And he's going to see less of that. I think that there's an argument that the ball gets spread a little bit more, that he won't see 150 targets. I'm not sure about that. He's going to see a lot of targets still. And I'd be very surprised if he's not seeing over 90, over 100 receptions. I think that'll probably still happen. I think that Kyler Murray as a quarterback, he's still developing. He's not the same type of player that Deshaun Watson is. Even though they're both players who like to air that ball out, I think Watson's slightly better at it. I think that Watson had full trust in Hopkins over a few years they played with each other. I think there'll probably be some learning. And, you know, we're going into the season without a preseason. Yeah, that's really important. So the amount of time that Hopkins and Murray have got to, you know, get that click, to work on routes, to just get that understanding that a quarterback and a wide receiver should have, they're not going to have as much time, if any time, to really get that started. So we might see the first few games of the season, you know, some overthrows, some errant passes, and that's ultimately going to be a hit to his fantasy. So would you suspect a slight dip in performance, perhaps, from last year? I would expect a slight dip, but I think you could argue that that slight dip will happen to every every player who's moved teams this offseason. Yeah. Because they're all going to be disadvantaged by not having a preseason, by not having that time to work with each other. And I know we're seeing videos, like, you know, Brady's posted in, um, Instagram videos of him and Gronk working out again. Sorry, that's X 24-7 champion Gronk. <laughs> X 24-7 champion Gronk working out with... <laughs> Thank you. By his official title. 
His official title, X 24-7 champion, Gronk, working out with Brady. I've seen Phelan working out with Jefferson and the other Vikings receivers. So there's the unofficial stuff which is going on, but it's not the same as being at a team facility and really getting into the detail and working with the coach. No, absolutely not. So DeAndre Hopkins and Kyler Murray are basically strangers right now. And you know, the news this week that the NFL Players Association has voted to not have a preseason at all in terms of preseason games. Still waiting to see if that gets approved. It probably won't, but let's see what happens there. We could be going into the season with no preseason games whatsoever. So wide receivers and quarterbacks need time to start clicking. And that could definitely affect the first few games of the season. Great. So we mentioned Todd Gurley a little bit earlier on. What are your thoughts on the Gurley trade there? I know my brother is a Falcons fan. He's very happy with the acquisition. But I think I've certainly got some reservations over that. I don't think ever since he was pushed to his limit at the last Super Bowl, we've seen Gurley return to form. I'm going to be honest with this one. I think both teams in this trade are losers. I don't think there's any winners in the Gurley trade. You've got the Rams who've traded Gurley to the Falcons. Do you know how much dead money the Rams are paying for Gurley in the 2020 season? Oh, have they absorbed a lot, have they? It's about 20 million of dead money. Ooh. So you're paying a huge amount of money for a player who you're not even getting to put on the field. Dead money is terrible. So you've got the Rams who are losing from a dead money point of view. Falcons are getting Gurley on the cheap on a one-year deal, but... Like you say, Gurley has not been the player that he was for a few years. It's the elephant in the room. Everyone knows why. The injuries and the long-term nature of those injuries. I remember watching the Super Bowl at your place and it was so apparent how crocked he was. And yet they kept him on the field the entire game. Do you think that that may have had an effect in terms of prolonging the injuries that he's suffering from now? Or do you think that was always on the cards? I don't think that that had a big effect in the injuries that he has now. I think if you look at the nature of the injuries that he has now and what those injuries are, if reports are to be believed, it's arthritis in the knees. Yeah. And I mean, playing an extra game and that extra push in Super Bowl wouldn't have had a long-term effect on that arthritis. I think if you want to look at why he's got that breakdown, I mean, look at the amount of touches that he had in that kind of three-year span leading up to that injury. Now, we're saying that that injury, you know, kind of came to a crescendo. It was a thing going into the 2018 Super Bowl. 2016, he carried the ball 321 times. 2017, 343 times. 2018, 315 times. In the span of three years, he had almost 1,000 carries going into that Super Bowl. He was the definition of a workhorse. Now, did the Rams know that he was susceptible to this kind of injury, that his knees would break down like this? He came into the league when he was drafted with injuries. That did happen. So there were signs there. There were clues or risks. I think that the Rams disregarded those risks and decided they were going to use him as a workhorse come what may. And this is what happened. Yeah. But if we look at what the Rams have done, that's gone now. He's gone to the Falcons. The Falcons have got him on a one-year, five million deal, which on the face of it isn't terrible. But I think you've got to look at what they've lost here. They've got Todd Gurley, who huge question marks over him. Is he going to be the same player? Can he carry the workload like he used to? Probably not. The Falcons have lost Devontae Freeman and they've lost a very underrated running back who's solid in both the running and passing game. And I think that if I was going into a season as a Falcons fan, I'd probably want Freeman back over having Gurley. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting call because I have Freeman last season in my fantasy. He definitely didn't perform. But I think in terms of his reliability, you know, he was safely over his previous injury. His yards weren't fantastic, but there were certain factors that played into that. I think there's a reliable flaw with Freeman, at least. As we've mentioned, there's a lot of risk with Gurley. And if those injuries do flare up even more, they're really, really stuck in that position. And of course, they've lost Hooper as well. So they don't have as much targets to go to in the air game. Well, the Falcons D was a car crash last year. And part of the reason why Freeman had such bad stats, really, for a season was because the Falcons were always chasing games and they were always playing behind. So if the Falcons are going to play like that again, then it's almost moot. It doesn't matter if you've got Todd Gurley or if you've got Freeman on the field. Yeah. If you're chasing a game and you're having to throw the ball, well, then who cares? And so overall, there's probably bigger problems that the Falcons have and that the Falcons need to address. And the noise around Gurley and the running back position is probably more of a distraction from that. The defence needs straightening it out. Uh, that's key. Like you mentioned, they lost a great player in Austin Hooper as well. Yeah, so Hooper then, he's moved to the Browns. I feel like we say this every year, Joe. Does that put them in the running? Are they contenders? <laughs> it doesn't put them in a running. Let's get things straight. It doesn't put them in a running while they still have problems on D, while they still have Baker Mayfield playing quarterback. They're still problems. Okay, but I would... I don't know. Oh, I fall into this trap every year. Every year I think this is the year that they might turn it around. Uh, Mayfield's been working on his footwork. Now, what that equates to in real life when the games kick off again, we'll see. But the Browns have shored up their offensive line to give Mayfield that better protection. They already had a good wide receiver core, and now they've added a very good tight end in Hooper. With the work that Mayfield's been doing off-season and working through with his coach, it feels like this is the best chance that they do have if they're ever going to make it. No, I don't think so. I'm going to disagree with you, Charles. Oh. I'm going to disagree with you, and I'm going to say why. You've brought this point on because Hooper's gone to the Browns. Now, don't get me wrong. I think Hooper's a really good player. I like Hooper. I've been watching him for the last few years, and I think that he's been sneaky, a really good tight end. And I think last year, he was one of the better tight ends in the National Football League. He's not Kittle, he's not Kelsey, but he's in that next tier after that elite tier of two or three tight ends. He's in that next tier. Yeah. And he's one of the better players of that next year. So don't get me wrong. Hooper's a great player. Hooper going to the Browns isn't enough to elevate the Browns. Improving your tight end and upgrading the tight end position isn't going to turn a team who weren't a contender into a contender. Especially when it's not like tight end has been a blaring problem with the Browns. The Joko's been all right. He's not been great. He's not been elite, but he's been all right. And if you look back to... Exactly one season ago when everyone was hyping the Browns up and saying how the Browns had the best receiving core, everyone was saying OBJ, Landry and Ajoku. And everyone was making out that that was a receiver set that was going to be the thing to take the AFC title and go to Super Bowl. So it wasn't a huge amount of upgrade to be done at the tight end position. Agreed, but with combination with how they drafted to improve their protection of Mayfield, do you not think that then makes Mayfield better? Because the thing that let the Browns down last season was Mayfield. You can't put it all on Mayfield's shoulders, but he regressed as a quarterback in his second year. So if they have got him the protection that he needs to give him more time to allow him to make those passes, the whole Browns may step it up. Because defensively, the Browns were quite good. 
but they were on the field a lot. If they're off the field or not on the field as much as they were last season, I don't know. I, I've, I've just got a feeling and it might be the third year in a row I'm wrong, <laughs> but I've got a feeling. I think the Browns will be decent this year. I would say that, again, the reason that Mayfield was getting sacked a lot wasn't because of a line. It was because he was holding the ball for too long. And don't get me wrong, there were circumstances where it was blind, and you could say it for every single team. But the amount of sacks that he absorbed, there were a number of plays where he just didn't have the football awareness to get rid of the ball, mm. to look for an outlet, to do that little dinky pass to get the ball away. He wasn't doing that. And that's why he was taking those hits. I think you look at the division that the Browns are playing in, the Ravens have got better. The Ravens have made improvements. They've managed to hold together the core of that team there. The Ravens are going to win the AFC North this year. That's a prediction right there. You can hold me to it. Yeah. And to be honest, even though the Steelers seem to be constantly in some form of turmoil, rebuilding flux, who really knows what the Steelers are really doing? They're not quite in rebuild mode. They've still got Roethlisberger. They've still got a lot of the old veterans there, but then they are changing a lot of key skill positions. I think the Steelers will finish above the Browns still. I don't see the Browns having a better year than the Steelers have. And then the Bengals, whatever. It's the first season with Joe Burrow there. They've still got a lot of holes. So a prediction, if I'm going to make it, would be Ravens, Steelers, Browns, Bengals in the AFC North in that order. Okay, interesting. I agree with you on the Ravens, but I think I'm going to move the Browns up into second. Okay, okay. So there we well, go. If we play football this year, then we'll soon know. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously another thing that we probably need to talk about with Hooper going to the Browns is Njoku's request for a trade to leave Cleveland, which you have to think is a direct response to not being the tight end one anymore. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, interesting, really. Njoku maybe, maybe just should, should take a step back here. Kevin Stefanski is going to be the coach and Kevin Stefanski plays 12 personnel. He plays 22 personnel. He plays base offenses with two tight ends quite a lot. All because Austin Hooper's out there, it doesn't mean that Njoku will necessarily see fewer targets than what he saw in his 2018 season. Austin Hooper, over the last four years, his rookie season only started three games. His second season started half the games of that campaign, but still had 50 receptions. In the last two years, he's made over 70 receptions each year. He's a player who's grown into the league, who's been getting more and more targets particularly in that Falcons passing game where they were playing behind a lot and had to air the ball out. I think we're more likely in 2020, if Najoku stays with the Browns, to see a regression in the number of targets that Hooper gets and the number of receptions that Hooper makes than the number that Najoku will see versus his 2018 season. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. We're on to episode two now. We've spoken about Green Bay. One team that we haven't spoken about yet is your beloved Vikings, Joe. Stefan Diggs has been let go. He's been moved to the Bills. I know that at the time, because we discussed this, you had concerns over paying Diggs big money. So why don't you talk us through about that trade and what you think that means for the Vikings and what you think it means for the Bills? I knew that it was only a matter of time before we were going to start bringing this up. And one thing that's slightly hard to talk about because you're always talking about this from a slightly more emotional level when it's your own team and it's hard to be as analytical, uh, especially when you look at some of the memories that Diggs has given Viking fans over the last few years, the Minnesota Miracle obviously being one. The Saints will never forgive him for that. Neither will I. I lost money on that. I think the Saints need to look at their own players for forgiveness before they start looking at Diggs for that. But Yeah, fair enough. That's for another day. Now, right, so look, Diggs. Diggs wasn't happy at the Vikings. Everyone knows that. 
and it became a distraction during the season. Now, there's different ways of looking at this and there's different ways of the way that people perceive this. Some people perceive it purely as Diggs throwing his toys out of the pram, that he wasn't happy there, that he wasn't getting the amount of targets that he wanted to get, that he was being brattish and childish about it. Then there's others who actually look at some of the things that he was saying in those videos where it looked like he was throwing his toys out of the pram, where the truth wasn't quite that, where he may have been perceived in that manner, but he wasn't necessarily communicating to his teammates in that manner, and that the negative assumptions that people were making about him weren't necessarily what was happening. But whatever way you look at it, there was a perception there. There was a perception that he wasn't happy, there was a perception that he wasn't about the team, that it was about him, and he clearly wanted to go. There's that. What the Vikings have done, though, they've traded away a wide receiver who... <laughs> was he wide receiver one for the Vikings? Was he wide receiver two? He was wide receiver 1.5. Stefan Diggs wasn't a wide receiver one for the Vikings. The Vikings have traded him as if he was, taking a first round pick for him, and a fourth round, and a fifth round, and a sixth round. Adam Phelan was a wide receiver 1.5. Neither was 100% the stud wide receiver who was taking, you know, 60% of targets. They both complemented each other in very much a wide receiver tandem. But the value that Diggs has in the position he plays the way that he runs routes, the way that he plays the game, danger that he can bring to the deep ball makes him the potential to be a wide receiver one for another team. And I think that's what the Bills are seeing there. I think that's a really good point, actually. I think that if you're talking about winners, whereas we had the Falcons and the Rams earlier with Gurley, where we said both teams were losers, this is one where I feel that both teams are winners. I feel that Diggs has the potential to be really, really good for the Bills, who again have a young quarterback that they are happy to take risks, to try things with new players, to to move their franchise on. Likewise, I feel that if Diggs had have stayed, they were overpaying for what you rightly put was a wide receiver 1.5 in the Vikings. And actually, I think we spoke about Green Bay's First round pick last week. Uh, let's not talk about it again. But I really like where the Vikings have gone with their first round pick with Jefferson, who I actually think is going to slot in really, really well. You know, he won't pick up where Diggs left, but for what you would have had to pay to keep Diggs, I think you've you've done a really, really good bit of business there. You know what, Chaz? Maybe it's because I'm a fan, but I see it slightly different and I see it slightly more negative than that. The issue that I have is that there's a lot of dead money that the Vikings have on Diggs for this year. So while we might be saving on his contract from the 2021 season to the 2022 season, in 2020, we're not actually going to really be seeing those cap savings from getting rid of Diggs this year. So from a financial point of view, it doesn't really help the Vikings right now. The other thing is, Jefferson, like you say, is a really good player. At LSU with Burrow, he was magnificent. He was massive. The yardage he got was excellent. But he played nearly every single snap in that season from the slot. Now, the Vikings already have, and I'm going to argue this because I'm a fan, they have arguably the best slot receiver in the league in Adam Phelan. So they've already got slot almost locked down. Adam Phelan plays in the slot and he plays great in the slot. Jefferson is going to have to play as a proper out wide wide receiver. And he hasn't done that for the last year. He's not done that at all. So not only is he going from a college game to the NFL... He's changing positions in a way because he's going from slot to out wide. And that's a huge risk. So don't get me wrong. Yeah, he's a great player. 
He will be cheaper in the long term over the next couple of years, not this year, but there's a lot of risk there. If he doesn't make that transition from college to NFL, if he's not as good out of the slot as he is in the slot, then he's going to be a downgrade on Diggs. Interesting. Good point of view, yeah. If you are right that both teams are winners here, which let's go with that. Let's go with that that both teams are winners. Then the loser here, I think, is Stefan Diggs. If we take the perception that he was unhappy at the Vikings because he wasn't getting enough targets, that he wasn't getting the ball as much as he liked, he isn't exactly going to a quarterback who's an upgrade on that. Josh Allen likes to hold the ball and he likes to run. And he's quite good at that. He's quite good at making gains with his feet. What he's not so good at is throwing the ball accurately. Over his two seasons so far, his completion rate has been 56.3%, which is very pedestrian. His yards... In his rookie year, okay, he only started 11 games, was only just over 2,000. Last year, starting every single game, he only threw for just over 3,000 yards. They're not the yards of an elite passer. And people can say what they like about Kirk Cousins, and some of the criticism that's leveled to him is fair because he's paid a lot of money. Some of it is not fair because he's also not a bad quarterback. He's not elite, he's not the top quarterback in the league, he's not a Mahomes, he's not a Jackson, but he plays a good game. He throws a lot more accurately. And he'll throw the ball a lot more in a season than Josh Allen will. And it's not like Diggs is going into an empty wide receiver room either. You've got Cole Beasley there. You've got John Brown. He won't be getting every single target from Josh Allen. If he thinks that he's going to be getting more yards, more touchdowns, I think that Stefan Diggs might be in for a shock. Interesting. Because the Vikings were very, very run heavy last season. The Vikings were run heavy last season, but Kirk Cousins still threw for 3,600 yards which is 20% more yards than Josh Allen threw for last year. And Cousins did it with a game less as well because he didn't play the last game of the season. So the Vikings threw the ball a lot more than Josh Allen did. Interesting. There you go. Let's look at our last skill position then with Sanders moving from the 49ers to the Saints and the effect that that has on the two teams involved. Yeah, that's a great shout, Chaz. But in discussing this, there's actually two players that I want to talk about. Sanders is one of them. And I don't think we can talk about Sanders here without talking about someone else, and that's Robbie Anderson. And I'll tell you why. Sanders has moved to the Saints. He's on 16 million two-year contract. In the same division, you've got the Panthers, who have just played 20 million for two years for Robbie Anderson. I think it's quite interesting that you've got the same division there, same position, two players who are at very different stages of their career, and a slight difference in the money that's being paid here. I think that if we look at the two teams, I think the Saints have done a lot better here. Sanders might be getting a little bit old now. I think he's 32, something like that. But they're still gassing the tank. I think that he's someone with experience. He's been around quite a few teams, but he's been in winning teams. He's been to the Super Bowl several times now with Broncos and with 49ers. And generally throughout his career, he's been a reliable player. I think he knows what his role will be. And it's going to be behind Michael Thomas. But I think that the Saints have... Got a wide receiver two there who is not a wide receiver three being pushed into a wide receiver two role. They've got a very, very solid number two to Michael Thomas. Now, if you look at what the Panthers have got, and they're paying more money for it, Robbie Anderson is someone who can blow the lid off plays. He's a fast downfield wide receiver who, if you look at his highlight reel from the Jets, did some amazing things over the last couple of seasons. Robbie Anderson, though, is someone who cannot be relied on. He's someone who has had numerous off-field issues, who has had arrests, who has been a disruptive presence in the locker room. And the type of player who he is, 
The Panthers have already got that covered, really. You look at Curtis Samuel. You look at DJ Moore. They might not have the best elite wide receiver room in the league, but we've got some decent players there. Something slightly smells about this. Maybe if I was a wide receiver in the Panthers' locker room, who's not being paid as much as Robbie Anderson is, and you look at Matt Rule, the head coach, head coach at Temple, Robbie Anderson used to play for Matt Rule at Temple. This has to go well. If he does not play well, if he misbehaves, I think that's going to have far-reaching consequences for Matt Rule, and it's going to bring his judgment and his support in the locker room into question. It's a really good point. I think one of the things that I was, I don't know if surprised is the right word, but I know that the Saints were working with a very limited cap space over this offseason. I think it was quite impressive that they were able to pick someone of Sanders' ability up as well as being able to bring back Malcolm Jenkins and retain his services, which I think he really, really performed very, very well last season as well. So with limited cap space, being able to hold on to some of their key players and bring Sanders on board is a really big boom for the Saints. And they're one of those teams who are always on the cusp of Super Bowl every single year. Maybe this is the thing that helps them just tow it over the line. Charles, I totally agree with you there. I think that that is an absolute spot on statement. The Saints have really been constricted by the cap. They've had issues, but they've still managed to make the team better, even with a limited cap space that we've got. Was it right to invest that limited cap space they had in Saunders? I think you can certainly argue the case that it was. Perhaps maybe more pressing was the offensive line. There's definitely problems within that line, and they've got some players who are not even average, who are poor for their position in the offensive line. And I think that where Breeze is right now, that could have potential issues going into this season. But ultimately, you're right. They have managed to strengthen the team with a very limited amount of cap space. The organisation in the Saints is very well run. And again, I think you're totally right. I think there will be Super Bowl contenders once again. And I've made a couple of predictions tonight. But I think that the Saints will win the NFC South once again. And there's nothing to really stop them from having another deep player from. Excellent. We've spoken a lot about the skill positions, right? When we're talking about off-season moves and trades and acquisitions. Are there any defensive positions or O-line positions that you want to discuss in terms of big moves that have big implications on the rest of the league? So Charles, let's talk about DeForest Buckner. 49ers, a team who went to Super Bowl last season. I mentioned earlier on the Rams and a problem you have when you go to Super Bowl, that you suddenly have a lot of veterans who are coming up for a payday, who definitely feel that they should be taking a big payday because they're Super Bowl players and they've just come off a magnificent season. The 49ers in my opinion, are probably the best run team in the league right now. I think their front office is doing an incredible job. I think the deals they're making and the contracts they're making with players are incredibly sensible, incredibly prudent. And the success that they're having is because the front office is giving them all the tools and managing the team in a right way to create that. And I think that with what they've done with Forrest Buckner, I think it's evidence to that. It would have been extremely tempting for a team like the 49ers with the defence and the domination that their front four and front seven have had. It would be extremely tempting to give a player like Buckner a huge contract and attempt to lock him down for a few more years. They didn't. They traded him to the Colts. And they picked up a first round pick for that. So I believe it was the number 13th overall. That's correct, Jazz. And two things here. First round pick was the right value for Buckner. 
I think that they got a fair price and I think that the Colts paid a fair price for him. But what the 49ers did with that first round pick, I think supports what I was just saying about them being such a well-run organization. They took that 13th pick, they traded down one single spot to the Buccaneers. And in return, they changed the 7th round pick into a 4th round pick, which is great business. Trading a very, very late 3rd day pick for a 2nd day pick, great business. And they only dropped one spot, and they still got the man who they wanted, Javon Kinlaw, who's going to be a direct replacement for Buckner. Great business all round. I think that the 49ers are showing how to run an organisation. I think that if Kinlaw basically plays half a game that they want from him, then yes, Buckner will be missed, but this is the right deal. This is the right move. And I think it's a great piece of business from the 49ers. Yeah, and the Colts have paid out for this because not only did they give away their 13th pick, but they've also given Buckner an $84 million four-year deal, which is megabucks. It's big. It is big for a defensive tackle, but I think that the Colts have almost earned the right to do this in the way that the Colts have been managed over the last two or three years. The Colts basically managed to get their salary cap extremely low. They've had a rebuild. They got that cap very low. They've still managed to be relatively competitive and they've been a sneaky, decent side over the last couple of years, despite having a lot of cap space. They play that for free. They perhaps see the next couple of years now as the window they're going to where they've made some good draft picks over the last couple of years. And they have had a couple of really good drafts. So they've got those really good players on cheap contracts. They've got a lot of cap space. I think they're starting to see it now as, hey, we've got to go through this in the next couple of years now. Let's get a couple of those expensive veterans on to make the team what we need it to be. And let's see how far we can go with things. And so you're right. It's a big contract, but I don't think that it's necessarily the wrong thing to be doing right now because they've got that cap space. They run a 4-3 and they need a big presence at DT because they've not really had that. And I think that, that this is the right move. I think that this is probably one of those trades where both sides have one. I think that really, I think that even Buckner has won here because he's he's getting his payday. He's playing for a competitive side. He's not going to a trash side. And I think it'll be interesting to see kind of what the Colts do from um, a defensive stance now and kind of what this does for them. So obviously something we saw from last season, Buckner's the kind of player that loves to get to the quarterback, who likes to break up tackles. Who are some of the quarterbacks that need to watch out for him now that he's been traded to the Colts? <laughs> Very good question. And it's quite interesting, really, because obviously the Colts are in the AFC South. So you're going to be playing the Texans, the Jaguars and the Titans twice each season now. I think since, what was it, 2017, 2018, when you had Saxonville Jaguars and you had that incredibly decent D that they had back then, there hasn't really been a dominant defence I mean, the Texans keep threatening to put a D together, but it seems that none of their top players could ever stay fit and healthy on the field at, at the same time. The Colts have got a lot of decent defensive players in place now, and I think that they could potentially take the division by the scruff of the neck on the strength of their D alone. You've got some teams there with questionable offensive lines. I'm looking at the Jaguars. I'm looking at the Texans, who didn't protect Watson enough whatsoever over the last couple of years. And I think that with the upgrade that the Colts have got to their front four here, very interesting. And I think that we could be seeing a lot of sacks in this division now. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, Watson, without his key man Hopkins to throw to in an emergency, that could spell real trouble for the Texans. Yes, it could. And I guess the only upside you could potentially look at here is that he's got a safety valve in Johnson now, potentially. If Johnson plays like Johnson played two, three years ago, then yeah, he's got that safety valve. 
Otherwise, if he needs to hold on to the ball for longer to find an open man, if there's no one open down the field, he's either going to be throwing that ball away a lot or he's going to be absorbing an awful lot of sacks like he has done in the last couple of years. But I think that that Colts D is going to be very, very tasty this year. And I think that they're going to have some fun in the AFC South. Nice. Okay, Chaz, we're starting to run out of time a little bit here. We're at that point in the season now where basically the exciting off-season stuff has happened. We've had the draft, we've had free agency. It's actually a great time for us to be doing a podcast because it gives us plenty of time to catch up on all the off-season trades, on all the news from earlier in the season, and we can really look at some detail now that the dust has settled. I guess the only off-season news story which is really pressing and pertinent right now is that of COVID-19 and the effect it's going to have on the league and the effect it's going to have on the season. Absolutely, Joe. I mean, as we've already heard, they've already done away with week one and week four of the preseason games. And as we've mentioned, you know, that can be quite critical, especially when you've got new quarterbacks, new wide receivers trying to find that rhythm and that pattern. Is there risk of further cancellations or further delays, do you think? Well, first of all, just on that point you made there, I think this might sound a bit silly, but I think there's a massive amount of sadness, really, of losing that week four of the preseason games. Week four of preseason is the week when basically the players who have made that 90-man roster who aren't good enough to play in the league, who are probably going to get cut and never play again and go to working in a car sales room or whatever they're going to do after they realise their sports career is over. Week four of preseason is the very last time that they get to go on a football field for a lot of players. That's going to be taken away from them. And so you can make a joke about it and you can laugh about it, but those kind of classic integral parts of a game, the traditions of a game, we're going to lose them that year. And so it might not seem much just losing week one and week four, but it, it has an effect. Does that mean that those players will get a chance in week three? I don't think it will. When you've only got two preseason games, you're going to be running with your starters a lot more than you normally would in those preseason games. Yeah, absolutely. So your first string team, your second string team, they're going to be dominating those games and you're not going to really be having those seventh round rookies who won't get signed you're not going to have those those players. Those players who are getting cut, they've probably already played their last game. That's a really good point. And I think often when you're looking towards the future and to predict what might happen ahead, it's often quite prudent to look back in the past. We know that the NFL has been delayed in various different guises uh, throughout the years. But I think one of the really interesting things to know about the NFL delays of previous times, there was only one occasion ever in the NFL's history where it has been delayed by something other than labor disputes. And that was after 9-11. And here we are with COVID, something that's just completely shocked the world over and runs the risk of doing the same thing that that has done. I mean, they didn't even delay the NFL two days after Kennedy's assassination. Yeah, the NFL is very much a show-must-go-on organisation. I truly believe that they'll be doing everything they can to keep the season running. But I think the more preseason games we lose, the more they chip away of the traditions of a preseason, the more it becomes likely that even if the season's not fully cancelled, we might not be seeing a 16-game season. Yeah, I, I think that's an important thing to note. We have never in the history of the NFL had an entirely cancelled season. That would be a complete precedent. We've had reduced seasons before. We've had seasons that have been pushed back. But a a totally cancelled season has never been seen before. 
I mean, they even found ways to keep the league going during World War II. Rather than let the league fold, they did things like form the Steagles and the Card Pit to just keep players on the field and keeping the league going. They'll do everything they can. I mean, if you look at how the NFL responded in the early days of the COVID um, outbreak, they didn't want to cancel the draft and they waited probably later than they should have done to cancel the draft because they were trying to pull out every single stop they could to do a live draft and to keep the draft in Vegas. So the way that the organization is set up and the way that they structure things, they will want to keep as many games as possible and play as much as they can. It's just what the outbreak in the US and the situation there allows. And at the minute, it is very concerning with the increasing cases and the avalanche of new people infected day by day. Yeah. Now, there's more than one type of football in the world. And the English Premier League has seen a return to games with closed stadiums. Now, there is talk about maybe even completely closed stadiums or certainly a reduced fan attendance. What impact do you think that has on the teams? And also, what impact do you think that will have on seeing the live games? I mean, we've seen with a lot of sports that have taken back up, there's this introduction of fan noises and fan sounds that are superimposed onto the play itself. How do you think reduced capacity in stadiums is going to affect the game? Well, I think that really this gives an unfair advantage to the Chargers because they played to basically empty stadiums for all of last season. (laughs) But in truth, it's something that if they have to do, they will do. You look at other US sport, I mean, baseball season is slowly starting to pick up this week with training opening up. I mean, there's a lot of restrictions on it and there's a lot of rules in place. But other American sports leagues are opening up now. It is a higher possibility that they play with empty stadiums. But then there's also, I've seen a lot of rumours in the last few days that they're going to make fans sign waivers. There's two different ways of looking at that. But that is one way of getting their fans in there and making sure you don't get sued. So you could have fans signing waivers. But I think that the macro picture is more important here because whatever the league wants to do or doesn't want to do, it will be dictated by the bigger picture in terms of what's going on with the outbreak in the country. And if America is still in a really bad place and doesn't have a leash on COVID come September, then I don't think it matters if they want to sign waivers or do this or do that. I think that will dictate things. Could this be the one way that the NFL stops Bills fans throwing dildos on the field when they play the Patriots, perhaps? I hope it isn't because there's some, <laughs> there's some traditions you just don't want to lose. <laughs> well, I think on that bombshell, Joe, we're probably best off wrapping it up there, don't you? It's been fun, Chaz. Looking forward to the next one. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us again and we'll see you next week.